Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ones Ready Podcast. We are back for round two with retired Chief Wayne Norad as part of our Legend series. Um, again, more great conversation. I'm blown away by the memory that these guys have because they are able to remember dates, operations, details of those operations, and the names, like first and last names of all these people. So um, I want whatever they're taking. And they are probably taking Cardomax at cardomax.com, promo code ones ready, just to get that caffeine and those juices flowing because these guys are awake. Don't sleep on these dudes because they are sharp. Um, but check out Cardamax, great flavors. They've got the energy intensifiers. They've got the immune boosters. They've got hydration and it all comes in this little packet and you could just dump into a bottle of water of your choice. Um, I have seen Cardamax mixing it with some other drinks. I don't know. I kind of like the water, but, uh, great tasting. And if you're in a pinch, you can definitely just, uh, throw the pack straight in the mouth. But I tell you what, you better have a chaser afterwards because it, it, it gets a little spicy. Um, but yeah, check them out. Cardomax.com, promo code one's ready. Get yourself a discount. And now on to Chief Wayne Norad for round two. Again, phenomenal conversation. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the One's Ready podcast. We are back for round two with Chief Wayne Norad, retired. Uh, Chief, appreciate you joining us again. I, I know you're busy and I know that, uh, well, it's not just you. There's a lot of people that aren't, aren't necessarily comfortable with coming on a podcast. So we definitely appreciate you, you, uh, joining us and taking the time for a whole nother hour. Um, so you, you kind of hit a lot of like, you hit a lot of stuff, obviously over 30 years of, uh, of service. Like you've got a lot of stories to tell. You've been instrumental in a lot of things that were already covered in part one, but we kind of wanted to dive in a little bit to some of these missions that you did. So um, let's hop right into Cambodia. Um, and I don't, I don't really know where to go with the whole Cambodia thing. I'm just going to kind of say Cambodia and then let you riff. It was a classified mission and uh, the war was over in uh, supposedly uh, 73. And then a couple of years later, uh, clandestinely, we were still supporting the, uh, the Cambodians, and uh, we were, I was stationed at Clark Air Base in the Philippines on the combat control team there, and we would go to Utapau Air Base, Thailand, and they would fly us in on uh, C-130s, uh, supposedly not American military, but I think after 25 or 30 years, we can figure out they were. But anyway, uh, it was called Bird Air, owned by Mr. Bird. I actually met him quite a few years later at a Air Commando reunion. But uh, anyway, Bird Air uh, had crews that were um, in civilian clothes, and I would assume they would be going in, uh, referred to as sheep dipped. In other words, uh, okay, you're not in the military right now. Here's a new ID card. But in fact, they still, you know, were military. So with us, uh, we went in in the mornings and came out at the end of the day on the last C-130. And we would leave somebody overnight, uh, stay in the American Embassy, uh, town Phnom Penh, to check the runway for rockets and things that had gone off during the night so that when they landed 
first aircraft in the morning uh, would be safe so they didn't run over debris and cut tires and you know, have an accident incident. So, so that's what we did. Uh, I think we started it in early January uh, 1975, and we did it for January, February, March, and a little bit of April. So we were in civilian clothes, no weapons. Um, our job was to uh, monitor the air traffic controllers in the tower to make sure they weren't, you know, messing up the flow and putting our American aircraft at risk. We were getting incoming aircraft actually from Saigon. They were uh, DC Stretch 8. I remember one of the companies was World Airways, and they would fly in uh, two or three missions a day, you know, three or four aircraft each time, and um, they were bringing in food and humanitarian aid, right? <laughs> they also had <laughs> bullets and you name aid. it. Anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, during the day, we would get uh, shell from the Khmer Rouge, um, the enemy, and they would fire 107 rockets into the airfield where we were staged at. So we would um, plot where the rounds were landing and tell the embassy, and between the embassy and us, we'd make a decision on whether or not it was still safe to land aircraft. So that's what we pretty much did every day. A uh, guy or two in the tower, And then over across the runway um, on the ramp, we had a uh, sandbagged uh, little area that we could dive under to protect ourselves when the uh, rockets went off. <clears throat> That's where we did um, like ground control, uh, help the aircraft get offloaded. Uh, we had some Navy guys in there that were doing most of the aerial port kind of stuff, offloading. And I think we also, Occasionally had uh, U.S. Air Force uh, loadmasters or somebody be in there and help with that. So anyway, we did that January, February, March. Um, I was a team leader on this particular mission. I was a tech sergeant at the time, and uh, I think I had three or four other guys. Uh, things were getting pretty hot. The uh, Khmer Rouge had actually confiscated American 105 howitzers. So we were getting shelled by our own howitzers as well as the 107 rockets. And believe me, you know the difference between a 107 rocket and a 105 howitzer. Um, in fact, um, one particular day, um, the Cambodians that were there helping us out, they were all in a circle eating. They get down on their haunches and they eat their rice or whatever, and a, and around. This actually, thank God, but it still took out a lot of them, was a 107 Chinese rocket hit right in the middle of them. I think it ended up killing like 11 Cambodians, um, injured several others. I remember my teammate Carl Casey uh, was trying to help and patch up some people. We had very little medical aid, but he had some gauze and things, and he was working on this one guy. He said his eyes were like, staring and he was working on him and he was stuffing gauze and stuffing gauze and he just couldn't stop stuffing it in. He turned him over and the base plate 
of the 107 rocket fell out of his back. So he Ooh. knew that he was done. So he went to uh, to another Cambodian that was uh, hopefully savable and, and started uh, working on him. Our chief, Chief Jim Howell, decided that uh, the best thing to do was get tourniquets made. So the landline to the embassy were wires. <laughs> Jim Howell, Chief Howell, cut the wires, <laughs> lost all contact with the embassy, and uh, started using them for, for tourniquets. I guess they did help out. But eventually we got uh, got contact back, and uh, I think we stopped the uh, flow for that day. Anyway, fast forward to myself and my team. We were in there the last part of March, and uh, the first day of April, the premier that we were supporting, he and his family got on an aircraft and left. So I'm there working in the tower that day. We got shelled pretty hard, and uh, he and his family left, and they're shooting rockets at him and stuff as they're flying off. But uh, after they, you know, departed, uh, the shelling kind of eased off. But here we are thinking to ourselves, at least I was thinking to myself, the hell are American GIs who aren't supposed to be here, still here, when the premier that we're supposed to be supporting. Whoop, just Whoopsie. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, actually the next day on the 2nd of April, my team uh, was picked up and evacuated out of Phnom Penh back to Utapau. And we waited there. We reread re the uh, evacuation uh, plans for uh, getting the uh, friendlies uh, out of out of Phnom Penh. And uh, so we got that out of the safe. We read the plans. Da, 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 da. And then I'm waiting to have the mission come off. And then I'm going to be the team leader on it, take my team back in. But no, no, there's some more ranking guys back at Clark. That decided they had to get one more, you know, Southeast Asia mission. So in comes Senior Master Sergeant Lanier, Master Sergeant Brabham, Tech Sergeant So-and-so, Master Sergeant Donaldson, and Tech Sergeant Wayne Norad, Staff Sergeant Jerry Jones, Staff Sergeant Carl Casey, and whoever else I had. We were told to wait until an aircraft to take us back to, uh, the, to the Philippines, to Clark Air Base. So I missed out on that mission, and I went back. But our guys did go in. And uh, they helped with the uh, evacuation. The bad part was back in those days, the joint arena was really broken. Uh, you know, they put the Marines in there and the Marines didn't even know the call sign of the headquarters that, you know, was overseeing the mission. Uh, we had been there for those three months that so we were talking to, uh, you know, the embassy. We were talking to uh, um Saigon, it was 7th Air Force was in charge. I forget the call sign off the top of my head. But anyway, uh, it was it was a mess. And uh, we actually were, our team of four guys was put in by a, uh, a jolly uh, Green Giant 53 helicopter, rescue helicopter. In fact, uh, turns out later on, one of my best friends, Stu Stanlin, uh, was on that mission as a PJ. So they inserted our guys. They were on the ground and things were really going bad and, and the uh, the Marines didn't realize it, but every time they were given strife reports of where the uh, incoming was landing, the rounds kept getting closer because they could, you know, they were they were in the clear. So the Cambodians and interpreters were 
adjusting their guns based on what the Marines were telling them. So when it got too bad, uh, our guys called Jolly back in and they came back in and, and picked them up. And as a matter of fact, uh, from what they told me, just as they were lifting off and leaving around here, right where they had just sat down. So if they hadn't get out of there, as soon as they did, a minute or two later, they were all probably would have been killed with the aircraft on fire and all that. So anyway, they got out of town and uh, the evacuation uh, finally ceased. Got a lot of friendlies, but we left a lot back there, too. I uh, heard later on that uh, a lot of the uh, uh, helpful Cambodians, um, most of them women, um, they were... They were slaughtered. They downtown at the restaurants and bars and stuff. They cut their heads off and put them on the posts uh, outside of the bars and and so on. So that was tragic. Anyway, that mission finished, and then uh, I went back to Clark, as I mentioned. Um, got back there, and a couple of weeks later, uh, I was TDY someplace else. I think I was in Okinawa. And they decided to pull the evacuation of Saigon, Vietnam. And uh, my teammates from Clark uh, went to Saigon, another four guys uh, led by Master Sergeant Brabham, who happened to be on both of those missions. Staff Sergeant J.D. Birch, Staff Sergeant uh, Guy T., Tom Fagan, and uh, Senior-Man John Weeble. So they all four went in and helped with the evacuation of, of Saigon. They rumors had it that the CCT team was the last ones to leave Saigon. That that is false. Uh, they were the last team or the last Americans to leave Tonsonut Air Base. From there, they went back into the embassy area and got evacuated by the Marines onto a, a ship. And uh, and then the Marines continued to work. So no, they weren't the last to evacuate. They were the last out of. So anyway, that uh, that was the Cambodian deal, uh, Saigon deal. Uh, out of Saigon, uh, all four of those guys uh, received silver stars for that mission. Most of the guys out of Cambodia, we either got bronze stars or bronze stars of valor. Some just got accommodation, though. But anyway, uh, that was my experience with uh, a little bit of combat back then. Um, Go many years of training back in the States, several assignments, and uh, um, back at Herbert Field um, in the 23rd Special Tactics Squadron. I think we were called the 1723rd Combat Control Squadron at the time. And Panama uh, dictator General Noriega is raising hell down there. He's injuring Americans. Uh, GIs, etc., and I think he actually killed a major from the Marine Corps, and uh, that's when they decided to go do the mission. The 24th guys from up at Pope Fort Bragg, they were the the one team on the mission at first, and then one of the last things that happened in Panama before the actual takedown was that uh, some rangers from the Panamanian Ranger unit from Rio Hato had come to Noriega's um, rescue, if you will, or support him. And the uh, 
the intel that we had, the American intel, didn't realize that they were supportive of General Noriega. So now they had to stop the Rangers from coming up uh, when they hit Trujillo's Tucumán and the city, uh, Panama City. So uh, Craig Brochi was the commander of the 2-4. He and I had served together twice. I was his chief at the 1723rd, and he called down. He says, hey, Wayne, I'm going to give you the 23rd. 1723rd, the mission to take down Rio Hato. I'll give you guys a couple of guys to help out because you don't really have a lot of PJs, and uh, that's your that's your mission. So it's number 19th, I think it was, 1989. Uh, team here, we drove up to Fort Benning. Back in those days, we still weren't getting supported very well, so we had no airlift to get us up there to link up with the Rangers to do planning and and uh, link up with them. So uh, at the time, Major Longoria, our DO, we didn't have a commander at that particular time. Uh, he decided, let's rent cars downtown, we'll just drive ourselves up. I mean, we why not? A couple of vans, and <laughs> away we went. And uh, we went to Benning. We did get there in time for some of the last-minute briefs. But uh, I was still discouraged with the way it was still disjointed in communications. Uh, the Air Force had planned to send in the new F-117s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we didn't even know that. Here we are, Air Force. We're the command and control guys that are going to be on the ground. The Rangers knew it. And I, and I found <laughs> out with my teammates at the uh, – Ranger briefing. So, yeah, and then these uh, two F-117s are going to come in. They're going to drop bombs and, you know, uh, disrupt the enemy. That'd be be nice to know. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's funny about that was we're coming in at 1 o'clock in the morning. And, in fact, I mentioned this into, uh, I think it was John Carney's book, No Room for Error. I mentioned, I said, they just wanted to get that new aircraft, you know, in the war or in the mission, on the mission, because all they did was wake up the Panamanians that were sleeping. It was 1 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and by the time we jumped, like, five minutes later, you know, they were all up. What's going on? <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So they did that. Um, I can't remember exactly how many, but we had some, uh, I think, three PJs from from Pope, from the 2-4, 1724th, uh, Chief Mike Lampy uh, came down. He and I had been through combat control school, stationed in the Philippines together, really good friends. In fact, you know, with the brotherhood as we are, my youngest son's named after Mike Lampy. No guy. way, really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, Mike came down with um, a couple other guys. I know Rex Ferrix was one of them. Um, and uh, yeah, I keep. I won't go through the other names because I can't remember them all. But uh, we we were going in with the Rangers. I was attached to the 3rd of the 75th Ranger Battalion Commander, Colonel Hunt. Uh, great guy. In fact, I just saw where he uh, he passed away about a month ago. He was a uh, full colonel leading the, uh, the old guard or whatever it is up at the uh, Pentagon. What's the name of that uh, base there where they have the uh, – all the ceremonies and everything. So he was the the leader of uh, the unit that puts on all those ceremonial things. Hmm. Anyway, um, so 
I was on airplane number two uh, behind Colonel Hunt. I think we actually overloaded the aircraft. If I remember right, my old jump master training days, I think you're supposed to have like stick could be only 33 and i think we had 35 in each stick so it was overloaded a little bit yeah it's combat operations though you got to do what you got to do <laughs> so um it's funny i'm thinking on the way in uh wow uh we're we're flying in there's 15 aircraft they have anti-aircraft fire because we were told about 30 minutes out hey they have anti-aircraft fire, and they know we're coming. So, you know, basically, wow. So I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe the first aircraft will get through because they haven't honed in the guns yet, so they'll get number two, the one I'm on, <laughs> with a couple of my buddies. But uh, it turns out they didn't. In fact, I think it was uh, Mike Lampy was on aircraft 10, and they did hit his aircraft. I'm sure they hit others. But I know in particular they hit a, a little side story here, that aircraft, because um, there was a young ranger that wanted on the mission. He had just signed in to Fort Benning, and he goes to Sergeant Major, and he says, hey, I know there's something going on. You know, I'm trained. I'm a ranger. Blah, 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 I got to go. So he says, all right, go get your kit. So they, they assigned him all of his uh, gear, and he got to go, and he was the first aircraft, the first body in the door. Actually, Mike Lampy, they had very few jump masters. So Mike Lampy was actually the, the jump master out of that particular stick on that door. So he puts him in the door, and as they're coming over the DZ, he's getting ready to jump. He gets hit, hit in the shoulder by an anti-aircraft round. They pull him out of the way, <laughs> set him down, and he went back home. He didn't even get to go in on the mission, and he was wounded. He didn't get a Purple Heart. <laughs> but anyway... Um, oh my gosh, he's just lucky he's alive. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we jumped in. In fact, uh, something that's pretty cool is the first objects that were dropped into Rio Hato were our mini uh, motorcycles. And the first people to exit the aircraft were combat controllers or PJs. They put us, we were in the front because we had to clear the runway and and all that. So uh, we had the door positions, except for like Lampy was with the uh, the other battalion commander, I believe, and uh, and myself. So that's why I was on uh, in number two and back with Colonel Hunt. Uh, incident that happened with with the aircraft I was on. There's about maybe two or three guys in front of Colonel Hunt. Uh, he's you know shuffling down to jump out of the aircraft, and uh, he fell down. He I don't know, stubbed his toe, did something. And the weight of his equipment, his rucksack, he had a big, I don't know, it was a law or something on. And he's like a turtle on his back. He couldn't get back up. And we're we're already at the end of the stick. So we're flying, we're flying. Like, get the hell out of here, you know. So finally, Colonel Hunt says, let's go. So he jumps over the guy and goes out. I jump over the guy and go out. So the rest of the stick, we all jumped out, bypassing this guy that had fallen down. Well, uh, something that, that happened after I jumped. This is a combat jump. I heard later that it was actually like at about 450 feet, supposed to be 500, which is, you know, the... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so so not much time. You know, the, the, normal, the normal combat training jump altitude is a minimum of 800. 
you know, we usually jump static line at a thousand or twelve fifty or something. So this was five hundred feet, but I heard the aircraft actually went a little bit lower than that. So I jump out. Um, I'm trying to lower my equipment, and I pull my two lanyards, and one side hung up. So I'm looking down. In fact, I think it was my right side. I'm looking down, and I'm I grab the uh, the lanyard, and I'm trying to pull on it to get the equipment uh, off me, that 80 and 90 pounds of equipment so that I can land a little bit softer under that parachute. And uh, I was, I hit the ground still trying to pull it. So I hit like a, like they say, a ton of shit, bag of shit. Well, I mean, and, that uh, when you jump out of that altitude, you're talking about like one swing, really uh-huh. one, maybe two swings before you were impacting. So that yeah, is, that we, is we probably should have, we probably should have left the reserves on the yeah. aircraft. They never would have opened, would have impacted the ground if we had nope. to use one. But anyway, I uh, I hit the ground, chambered my round, got my rucksack off, got rid of the parachute, and uh, then my radio wouldn't work. I hit so hard, I guess something happened in my radio. So I couldn't, couldn't hear my team. So I started making it back. And I run into Major Longoria, and somehow we split up again. Uh, I run into some rangers, and they were supposed to recover equipment that was dropped on the last five aircraft and uh, recover, you know, gun jeeps and all that stuff. Uh, They were young rangers. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know where they landed. They didn't know where the equipment was. So here I am, a E-9 chief master sergeant, and I'm already going to be late because I landed so far out uh, to, to help uh, clear the runway or anything. So, well, I hope these guys, and I was the only one that had night vision goggles on. The Air Force guys, we all had night vision goggles. So I put my night vision goggles on. I said, all right, come on. So here I am, a chief. You know, I'm the, uh, I'm the point man and <laughs> compass leader, whatever you want to call me. And... Uh, Anyway, I got the Rangers over, found a couple of the Jeeps, and I left them, and they obviously later on found the rest. By the time I finally made it back to Colonel Hunt in the uh, 3rd of the 75th Tactical Operations Center, we were already landing aircraft. Uh, Lampy had given them the okay. He was the backup for giving the clearance, and uh, the guys had cleared the runway, and we started landing aircraft. So that's what we did for the rest of the night. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, we took some pretty devastating hits down there. Um, for Air Force-wise, we, we did pretty good. We didn't have anybody wounded. Um, we did have one of our PJs that was from the 1724th uh, break his leg uh, on landing, and he was evacuated with some of the Marine, uh, some of the uh, Rangers that were wounded. But if I remember right, uh, before the mission was over that day and the next day, uh, I think we had six Rangers killed, several others wounded. Uh, One of the instances was basically, uh, unfortunately, uh, miscommunication, and we weren't controlling it. The Marine, I keep saying Marines. Going back to Cambodia. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the Rangers, Rangers uh, called in some uh, helicopter uh, gunships. Uh, they were trying to uh, take out these Panamanians that were protecting their weapon stash just a short ways off the end of the runway. And uh, 
unfortunately, they vexed him right over their position. The the helicopter opened fire early and killed two or three or four guys, Jeez. rangers, and uh, that was a shame. So, but so we sent our, our our PJs that were with us uh, to go uh, help patch those guys up, the ones that were wounded, and not dead, and. Uh, that's when we first used pararescue men and combat controllers together was in Panama. Um, back in Grenada, learned the lesson that we need our own medical support and rescue specialists, and that's when PJs were added to the complement at, uh, <clears throat> at uh, Pope in 17, well, it wasn't even called 1724th yet. <laughs> so anyway, the, rain, the uh, PJs <clears throat> had their... Um, Forget what we call those. They weren't Humvees. Uh, Talking about the old rats. Rat, the rat. Yeah, bees. yeah. <laughs> so the rat bees in uh, us controlling the ground, they could go rescue a, a ranger that was wounded, put an IV in him or blood transfusion, whatever they did, patch him up, uh, splints on broken bones, and come to the ramp, and we would automatically you know, right away, stop air, aircraft from movement so they could go put the injury on the next departing C-130 and out they would go. So that communication, uh, inter-team communication, really, inter-team worked really well. And it kind of proves the point that putting the PJs with the controllers was a pretty good idea. So, so 89 during that operation was the first time that the, the CCT and PJ had integrated? Yes, that's that's wild. And and, and I mean, that operation, we had trained together before when I was in the Philippines. I was a training NCO for our combat control team. And I actually uh, worked with the PJs to they helped give us uh, classes. It's still basic medicine, you know, basic first aid, but it was more than what we ever had. And then we would teach them, you know, using the balloons for the winds and communications with our radios, uh, how to set up drop zones, landing zones. And so we interacted, but we never went on a combat mission together. Yeah. The, the name of the game is, is integration, especially these days. And you guys were doing it way back. You know, I say way back. It was 89. I mean, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's not really that long ago, but for the, probably for some of the folks that are listening, 89 is like, it, it may as well have been world war two, but <laughs> the the uh, who, you, go ahead. And I I might have mentioned this in my first go around. I think I did, but if not, I want to just reiterate that from that mission uh, with seventeen twenty third going into Rio Hato, the seventeen twenty fourth, and I think the Pope uh, conventional squadron twenty second, twenty seventeen twenty first at the time. You know, they all got into Panama, um, but. One of my guys, Staff Sergeant at the time, and I know you know him well, uh, Gordy Tully. Uh, <laughs> Gordy uh, jumped in with me. Um, we had an aircraft incident where uh, one of the aircraft, one of the MC-130s that had landed with our uh, four-wheeler and all that stuff and some other guys uh, had turned onto the wrong taxiway and his outboard engine sucked up a parachute and he had to shut it down. So now uh, 
he needs more runway. The runway was a lot longer, but it was like split in half, and we were only using the first half. So now we got to send somebody down the rest of the runway, or at least another thousand feet or more, to uh, to make sure there's no debris there and make sure there's no enemy still there. So we sent Gordy Tully. So Gordy was going down, clearing the runway, ran into some Panamanians, uh, opposition, got in a firefight. He, uh, you know, shot a few rounds. They scurried off uh, into the woods or jungle, and uh, it seemed like it was safe enough. So uh, we uh, taxied uh, the aircraft down there. Uh, pilot uh, Major Skip Davenport uh, was the AC and uh, aircraft commander, and he took off with three engines, actually ended up getting a distinguished flying cross for that. So anyway, we put in our decorations at the end of the missions, and because us ranking people, we got bronze stars uh, because it was a combat operation for meritorious service. We weren't heroes or anything. But it disturbed me that guys like Gordy Tully made a combat jump, cleared the runway, got the aircraft off safely, isn't a firefight. Uh, he gets a combination medal. Accommodation medal on your chest doesn't mean any more than, you know, working back in the States and uh, you're stationed someplace for a couple of years. And they say, good job. Here's a accommodation medal. No, you're so, right. So I, uh, I went to work on making a suggestion to put V devices on those medals, on the accommodation medal, uh, achievement medal. And when it finally got approved, it was after I retired, but it went back in again. Uh, it got approved by Secretary uh, Widnall, and uh, they had added at the Pentagon uh, V devices to some of the flying uh, decorations, like the Distinguished Flying Cross with Valor and da da da. So, anyway, I just wanted to mention that uh, from that mission and me being a stubborn chief, I said, you know, I've got to take care of these guys that go in combat, and just because they're not you know, master sergeants or above or officers, they can't get a medal that means I've been in combat or shows I've been in combat. So anyway, that that got turned down at first. Like I said, uh, got put back in again by uh, the guy that replaced me as the AFSOC Command Chief, Mike Reynolds, and uh, Chief Vince Philpy down in A1. Um, they... Uh, said, hey, they'll be looking decorations. How about Wayne? Because I was still working on base as a contractor. So how about we put your suggestion in? I said, absolutely. The only bad part was it never got retroactive. So Tully's still uh, shit out of luck. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's enough of that, I guess. Uh, well, yeah, I just want to give kudos to, to the rest of the team. So they did a great job there. Uh, we got the uh, aircraft in and out. A couple of days later, we got relieved by the guys out of Pope. They took over. Uh, the 25th Infantry came in uh, Army-wise. Uh, we went up to uh, to Howard Air Force Base, and uh, actually we bunked in uh, the unit. We had a debt there at the time, uh, Combat Control Detachment, and we bunked in their unit. Um, but before the drops took place at Therese de Cumin, we sent in a classified mission team and uh, they set up beacons and were there um, to make sure there was some navigational aids to help bring the aircraft in for the big drop. 
with the uh, with the Rangers, and later on the 82nd got to get their combat jump as well. So um, kudos to the 24th guys uh, for making the combat jump up there, the guys that preceded them on that classified mission, and then the guys that uh, actually came in and relieved us. And I got to go home right after Christmas, before New Year's. I uh, did get to cook Christmas dinner there. Uh, one of the guys that was the NCIC of the debt, uh, they had sent all the families home, so they pretty much all had houses to themselves. So the three-bedroom house, we went over there, and I collected 10 bucks from everybody. went to the commissary and and uh, got a turkey and some a ham and all the fixings, and we had a nice Christmas dinner together there, And uh, which, in a way, I think helped solidify the PJs and controllers together. Here we are having Christmas, just been to you know, a combat mission together, and now we're having Christmas dinner together, so... Yeah, so that was a big help. And I remember when I got off the aircraft at uh, at Herbert, the uh, commander, uh, General Eggers, the first AFSOC commander, came up and said, hey, Chief, how's it going? How'd it go? And I told him, and uh, he said, uh, how'd the PJs do? And I said, man, they did a great job. In fact, talk to, talk to Frank Madeiras here. He he was on a pretty, pretty high mission, and, uh, no, they did great. So he ended up talking to uh, – to the PJs as well as the controllers that get off the airplane and everything was good. I, so I, I got to say like one is your memory and not just yours. Like when we talked to chief Lampy as well, like both of y'all's memory is incredible. I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't remember what I had. I, I, I struggle with memory. Um, so, That's because like, you had too many missions and they all kind of went together. Yeah. I had one, and 15 years later, I had another one. It's hard to just distinguish between two missions. Well, so, uh, so that's that's interesting that you say that, right? So, like, as somebody who has, has been in the community, because I like, I still consider you. I mean, you are 100 percent in the community still because you you are making impacts even even now. And when you see, you know. Uh, the kind of GWAT and then the post GWAT and that kind of stuff. Like I, I know, and I've, I'm just saying, I know, cause I've, I've, I've heard it and I've been told this, um, not from you, but like, there's a, there's a respect from, from an older generation that looks at what guys have done in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and Syria and stuff like that, that, you know, it's incredible what you guys are doing, but I don't think you realize how much we, or maybe you do realize how much we look up to all of you and the thing, incredible things that you guys did. I mean, just, just in the names that you mentioned, right. You're, you're talking about yourself, Mike Lampy and several of the other folks and, and it's repeated names like all the time. Oh, and then in this mission, this person and this person, and then in this mission, this person, this person. I mean, you guys are killing it. Yeah. Let me tell you this. The Brand X guys, the guys that went into Iran on the rescue attempt, those guys are pretty well known. And that was actually the first team of guys working the counterterrorist mission. Then they stood up the unit after that mission failed. And I happened to be in the unit that they stood up with there was 16 controllers two officers 14 enlisted and five support people that was 21 people total that was the beginning so 
a little bit contrary to what you just said, uh, you know how proud I am of the guys and the firefights they've been through from the global war on terror that uh, I just can't give them enough kudos. But at the same time, when they find out, oh, you're Chief NORAD, oh, you were in the first, you know, counter-terrorist mission, and you are the guys that started that so that we could get where we are today. So for us that were there, the Mike Lampies, the Craig Brochies, the John Carneys, the Jeff Buckmelters, uh, Rick Cafe, little fella, uh, Doug Phillips, you know, go on and on. We do get some accolades from the from the new guys when they find out, oh, you were the grandfather or the the godfather, uh, the godfather <laughs> of combat control, pararescue, special tactics, all that stuff. So, um, so yeah, I, I've been patted on the back probably too many damn times. I only spent three years there, and then I went to the damn staff. But anyway. Uh, we do get appreciated when they find out, oh, you were one of the first. And, uh, you know, what helped me, too, was uh, I was the president of the uh, Combat Control Association during the first part, five or six years, seven years of GWAT. And uh, when we started having people killed in action, uh, you know, we would support their families, and I'd get to meet the the spouses, you know, the the, the sons, daughters, moms, dads, um, and all that. And we would try to make them feel like if they ever needed anything, not only the active duty, but the retirees, anybody that's in our association would support what we want to uh, recommend that we support <laughs> you with. And uh, so I got to be friends with, the, you know, Pete and Sue Service and Wendy Argel and, uh, um, you know, Linda Crate, uh, Casey's mom, and um, Fresquez, uh, Nick and Sherry. Anyway, I got a lot of still longtime friends from from the families. Yeah. In fact, when we were sell- selling our house on Navarre Beach, uh, Sue and, and Pete Service had left and went back to Illinois because they had moved here after after Adam was killed and they went back and uh, I didn't know it, but they bought a nice condo down on Okaloosa Island. And I just was trying to catch up uh, six months later after they'd left and say, Hey Pete, how are you and Sue doing? This is Wayne. And oh, what are you doing? I told him it's sold our house. And said, in fact, we're looking for a place to live right now. <laughs> and he said, well, I have a condo down on Okaloosa Island. He says, uh, it's only for my family or closest friends. And I don't know if I want to call you closest friends or part of the family. family. You're welcome. You're welcome to stay there because we paid him some money, but he didn't, I mean, they were getting lots of money for that apartment. It was right on the beach, ocean view and all that. It's a beautiful place. And uh, anyway, we lived there for two or three months until we got our own uh, apartment. So that's the kind of, family you have if you're a special tactics person yeah you're you're not wrong at all and it's and when you're when you're dealing with kind of the the gold star families too uh, there is a a certain level of bond especially if you're um and i don't know if they the actually the acronyms changed now it's not a flow or a family liaison officer it's something else now um that i'm i'm brain farting on but um when you are that that 
family liaison officer with a gold star family walking from notification. It, it, it starts at notification and it'll last the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, and it is a, um, sobering, sobering, uh, role to have. It's, if not life changing. Was uh, also, uh, I was part of the Special Ops Warrior Foundation for 19 years. Uh, in fact, I was the first enlisted guy on the board and then followed by, by Mike Lampy. Mike would have been first, but he was still active duty. And they said, well, it might be a country conflict of interest. But anyway, uh, them knowing that I was serving as a director uh, and getting them hooked up. Uh, if need be, with the Special Ops Warrior Foundation and taking care of their children to go to college free, um, that that meant a lot to the to the yeah. ones that did have children. So yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, there. So before we had you, I'm gonna switch gears slightly because if not, we'll start yeah. talking about the amazing Gold Star families that did right. and then uh, you know then emotions start running. So yeah. Last thing I knew is didn't need to do is be getting emotional on a, on a podcast. But um, so I I reached out to two, two buddies of yours of ours actually, um, retired Chief Mike West and uh, and and retired Mass Sergeant uh, Phil Pimp Freeman to ask some some like hey what are what are some things I should ask? I won't like if I were to read the text that they sent me. Uh, one, it'd be self-incriminating. Two, you def- you definitely don't need that stuff out there. <laughs> but um, I don't think Mike would treat me that bad. Phil, <laughs> Phil, I just saw him the other night. We had a beer together here at the tap room. So, uh, yeah, I caught up with him. He said, yeah, I'm glad to see that you finally decided to go ahead and do the podcast. <laughs> said that Peaches was going to put me on you if you didn't do that. <laughs> but he said, I, I found was. out that, that you I was. finally had agreed. So, anyway, <laughs> all right. Yeah, so, what? What are the, well, one of them was like, hey, ask about getting dragged by your parachute into a deuce and a half during uh, some uh, during a Korean ORI. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was an exercise. I'm not sure it's an operational readiness inspection. Yeah, we were on an MC-130 and uh, we were going to put a beacon on top of this mountain. So we were dropping into a drop zone and then. Uh, and it was that night, and then we would go up the mountain and set up the beacons for beacon bombing uh, missions uh, to follow on. So we had uh, our own controllers on the ground, two senior master sergeants on the ground. Uh, so I don't think they'd worked with the wind meter very well the last – 15 years they were in the office but anyway they dropped us in like 15 20 knot winds satisfying jump and uh, we got offset quite far because of the altitude winds too so what happened to me was I was coming towards the drop zone and I said oh man I don't know if I can but there was there was wires on the side of the road and I didn't know if I could go over the wires if I lowered my rucksack I thought well my rucksack Lower line might hit the wires. Yeah. Then as I'm coming closer, I look on the uh, other nearer side of the road. They had cut a bunch of trees and stuff, so there's a bunch of stumps sticking out of the ditch. Oh. I said, man, I don't want to land in that. <laughs> so I get 
down where I have to make a decision. I said, okay, I'm not low on my rucksack. Maybe I can make it over the wires. And last minute, I couldn't. So I I do a left turn and take a downwind landing on the paved road. Here I'm talking 15 knot winds or so, the drive of the parachute. So I hit the road doing 25, 30 miles an hour. <laughs> and uh, so as soon as I hit, the canopy uh, inflated again, and it started dragging me down the road. And we had our deuce and a half there that was picking up. That, that's a truck for those that are on the broadcast. I don't know what a deuce and a half is. It's big, yeah. Military <laughs> so truck. It's big. It's big. <laughs> yeah. So the parachute pulled me under the back tire of the deuce and a half. And as soon as I got stuck under there, the, the parachute canopy kept going and it tangled my hands up. So I couldn't get up and release one side to get rid of the canopy and release the air and save my ass. <laughs> so anyway, uh, luckily there was guys close enough and they came running up and they had to pull on the parachute, finally get the, um, the cape well released and let the air out of it. And uh, anyway, so whew, I'm at least not going to die from no air because the, the lines are actually across my neck too. But the bad part was when I got up to walk away, my left knee was like a sponge. I had torn oh. my knee up. So uh, needless to say, I was picked up or with the ambulance there. And there was one other guy that, uh, that hit, I think he landed short and hit a building or something. So the two of us, his name was Dave Burchett. He and I got taken away uh, to the hospital. And I got a cast put on and whatever. So that's the... <laughs> That's the Korean uh, jump story there. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's if if those wind ten percent uh, VA out of that out of that jump <laughs> out of that one jump. Yeah, I imagine so. You blow your knee out. Yeah, yeah that's the with that wind being so high. If those if that thing's fully inflated, it's it's mm -hmm. tough to get those cape wells out because there's so much tension on there. Um, yeah. So there's there's one more like like I said, they sent me a couple, and I'm like I. I, t I told both of them, I was like, I don't, I don't know that I can mention that. So, but I will say, uh, th and this is one that, that Phil said, and I'm going to read a word for word because this is just shows the kind of person you are, at least the way he thinks of you. So Wayne, he's the kind of leader you want to work for. He's the kind of leader that if you disappoint him, you're more disappointed in yourself uh, there's a story of when he took a took a team to Bright Star in Jordan, and they had some dilapidated old barracks. The bathroom had not been cleaned in a while, and had uh, kicked up shit in the drain in the toilet. Um, so he texts us. So there's there's some you know weird typos or whatever. But uh, as a team leader, instead of telling airmen to get get the shit out of the toilet and clean the place up, you just stuck your hand down in the toilet with. <laughs> Golly, man, with with no gloves and just decided to start cleaning the toilet. I know that's not a heroic job, but it's kind of leader he is. Do you want to uh, do you want to follow and be like him? So <laughs> that is mostly a true story. Um, so I had gone over early on the planning for that exercise, and I thought we had um, quarters like the crews did. But by the time we got there. They had more crews than they expected. So we got put in the old Jordanian enlisted barracks, and it was horrible. The 
like like you were saying in the uh, in the beginning here, it was it was bad. They basically pooped and and uh, you squatted over a hole in the ground, not not a hole, but a tube and in the bathroom. So the hot water heater wasn't working. Uh, the toilets were stopped up. So I got the guys together and I says, "Look, this is going to be our home for the next month." So I said, first thing we do is clean this place up, get everything working, and then we'll feel a lot better about staying here. I know it's going to be crappy the whole time, but I don't want it to be this bad the whole time. Yeah, no kidding. But I said, the first thing we've got to do is get these flies out of here and get the shit out of those holes. So I did. I reached my, I think, I, if I remember right, I think I did put some kind of glove on. That's Maybe good. not. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but anyway... So I started pulling crap out of there, and uh, Mike Breeden was a staff sergeant at the time. He was pretty good electronically. He figured out what was wrong with the hot water heater. And the next thing you know, the flies are gone, the toilets are clean, got hot water, and we're in the barracks, and we're having a good time. What's funny about that mission was the guys that I had with me were pretty much from my unit, except we did have a couple of weather guys attached to us. One of them became a controller later, uh, Larry Matson. But uh, when we got there, we were supposed to do a lot of training in the field with the SF, and they decided they didn't want to take us for some reason, so we had a lot of time on our hands. So I got with the uh, MC-130 crew, of which one of the guys was a prior enlisted controller, big jump guy, and uh, so I got them to drop us all the time. And the C-141s to drop us, too. Uh, we were practicing for what they call uh, airlift rodeo. So yeah. we had to do jumps into the rodeo and hook up your, you know, get your radios going and do all this stuff. So the closer you could land to the target, the, uh, the quicker you could, uh, you know, get to end uh, X with your radios online and all that. So uh, we practiced that and practiced that. Plus, they had rucksack runs. And the three mile run. So every day I'd lead the guys. We'd go out and do, uh, you know, runs with uh, rucksacks and uh, without rucksacks, a lot of PT. And anyway, we went back and won the damn rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, it kind of goes to that that old thing. Like you're you you leave a place better than you found it, yeah. right? And <clears throat> and why would you live in squalor when you don't have to? You improve a place, and and that's just. Yeah. What you do, you know? In fact, Mike Breeden one time, I forget who was harassing me. There was something going on, and I don't think it was another controller or a PJ. I think it was a loadmaster. Somebody was trying to get me to to do something, and I knew better. I wanted to do it this other way. And uh, and this, this guy started, you know, giving me a hard time. And Mike Breeden jumped up there and he said, Chief, I got this. I'll kick this guy's ass. You don't have to. He said, if he's picking on you, he's picking on me. And so Mike jumped in there. Nothing happened. But anyway, that happened with Mike. And there was another guy, too. And I remember it was a Loadmaster deal where we were trying to back the trailer onto the back of a C-130 over in uh, uh, Korea on this. I forget the name of those exercises. I went on several of them. But anyway... I had backed in Jeep so many times as a young guy at Pope, backing it into the slot after we got through washing them and everything. But I could back it up without any problem. Well, the loadmaster wanted me to look at him, and he was going to give me signals. I said, I can't do that. 
I'll get it in there. You just go stop if I'm, you know, going to hit something, you know, screwing up. And the guy got belligerent with me. And one of my other guys stood up and said, you son of a bitch, I'll kick your ass. You <laughs> so, uh, yeah, take up for the troops and do your part. No matter what rank you are, they'll, uh, they'll hit, they got your back. So, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. My back. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I do. I, because I did last time. Uh, can we switch forward to almost a year later and just hit a little bit of Desert Storm? Desert yeah, field? let's, I mean, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. So um, everybody's pretty much familiar with the <clears throat> with the name uh, Desert Shield was the buildup of forces, and then Desert Storm was the name it was given uh, for combat operations. So uh, I got on the first C one MC one thirty to leave out of Herbert Field as a uh, forward advanced planner, and went into uh, into Saudi Arabia. Uh, we landed at Riyadh at first, and we thought we were going downtown and staying in hotels and all this stuff. But we got we got redirected, and we went up to uh, another airport, uh, not King Fahd. We ended up at King Fahd. Anyway, we landed at another airport, and we uh, stayed in uh, school rooms with uh, the old Army, call them Army, uh, you know, beds and mm -hmm. I don't even know if we had mattresses but anyway we were there for <laughs> days and uh, we were directed to go up to King Fahd International Airport which was pretty much finished but they hadn't opened it yet so we went up and surveyed it and said yeah this is good to go I mean it was a huge airfield a lot of ramp space huge runway <clears throat> so we were directed to go up there and eventually a week or so later we climbed the tower and uh no air condition or anything like that, uh, no no radio. So with radios on our back, we went up and started landing aircraft to bring in, you know, the force uh, during Desert Shield. Um, so I was kind of like the team leader on that. Um, had uh, Well, we did have an officer. His name was Tony Tino. Um, but uh, I don't even know if he had a rating. So I had a, a Pope Tower uh, air traffic control rating. So anyway, I was tower chief. Bobby Boyle was a master of senior, J.D. Birch, and we ran the airfield for a long time. Um, in fact, one month, we had a higher count of aircraft landings and takeoffs than O'Hare International Airport. Jeez. That's pretty good for a bunch of, you know, combat forward radio on your back controllers who with no control no, no radar we figured it out yeah with we no actually, radar no nothing yeah we actually had uh air traffic controllers uh tower controllers come and support us and it was it was kind of funny because we had already been working the traffic so we tried to say, well, okay, it's your turn. Go ahead and get on the mic. This guy refused to get on the mic because we didn't have approach plates and we didn't have this and we didn't have something that he was trained on for three or four weeks and get his facility rating. Yeah. There ain't no facility ratings here. Get on the radio, land airplanes. We'll figure it out. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of how it went. We eventually got relieved with, uh, with regular controllers, but it was several months later. In the meantime, I actually had come back to the States um, I got asked to come back. I was interviewing for the U.S. Special Ops Command, Command Chief job. And uh, 
So they pulled me back. I got to get down and uh, interview with General Steiner. <clears throat> General Steiner, I think, already had his mind made up. Uh, Mike Lampy had been on a couple of missions with him as uh, as a controller on the Achille Lauro mission, and there was a hijacking mission. And uh, so he knew Mike, and Mike was a chief at, at the 2-4 at the time. So anyway, I didn't get hired, but my buddy Mike did. And uh, eventually, before the war started, <clears throat> we uh, we went back over me, and we had now a new commander. We hadn't had a commander when it first started. So our new commander, Mike Brosh, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Brosh, and I, Steve Jones, uh, Bernie Yoder, Major Mike Gallagher, our senior medical guy, a former PJ, Stu Stanland, who's a second group chief of the 720th. Anyway, we we deployed over uh, before the shit hit the fan, if you will. <clears throat> when they decided to do the, uh, the ground war, they sent the Marines up through Kuwait, and we actually attached a four-man team to them uh, with our Hummer, with radios and all that. <clears throat> um, trying to think all the names, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Willett, Captain Willett, uh, Steve Jones, uh, Dwayne Stanton, the PJ, and um, wasn't called Casey anyway. One of the Carl guys. Casey, I've I've heard some of those names in a long time. <laughs> yeah, you, you Willett, your Carl Casey, like that's... yeah, <laughs> yeah, Steve Jones and Dwayne Stanton. So. Um, so they went up with the Marines. The Marines cleared the uh, enemy away from the airport, uh, all the way up to the airport. Um, and then we had a mission to go in on some special ops helicopters. And I think I had like six or eight guys with me. Um, so we flew up there. Um, we landed that afternoon and evening. We I got the guys to clear the runway. There was all kinds of bomblets and trash and vehicle parts, you name it, all over the runway, taxiway. So we cleared that up enough so that the next morning we were supposed to land fixed-wing aircraft. So Steve Jones and I, um, after we spent the night there, hunkered down. We, uh, Since, again, I was the only one that had a facility rating that I remember. So go up to the top of the uh, airport at Kuwait City International Airport. And we don't know if there's enemy still in the tower or not. So we did the old trick that we learned in survival school. You take the antenna off your FM radio and you do figure eights. And if you hit a wire, hopefully you're holding it loose enough in your hand that it'll fall out of your hand, but it won't trip the wire and explode. So we did that all the way up like 16, 17, 18 stories, however big. It was like the first, number one or second uh, highest tower in the world. <laughs> so anyway, Steve and I went up there. The, the inside of the tower was all burned out. The radios were all down. So we had our, again, radios on our back. And uh, I was doing the local control job. Steve was my ground control guy. And the other guys were on the ramp, uh, marshalling aircraft to parking and all that stuff. So we did that for most of the day. And uh, 
it started getting dark. I said, wow, how long have I been on the radio? Because I was real busy trying to remember call signs. And, you know, you, have, you ain't got no boards to you know, no. <laughs> all that stuff. So we're trying to write notes and do all this and keep our mind in the game and make sure everything's safe. So um, anyway, uh, it's getting dark. I said, what the hell time is it? I look at my watch. It was two in the afternoon. What had happened was uh, they had decided to light the oil wells on fire. And all that smoke was obscuring the sun. And it looked like it was dusk. At wow. The it was so dark that um, I got with a, I think it was Colonel Orell. He was our top uh Air Force Colonel that was uh, with Jesse Johnson, who was the, uh, the staff Special Ops Forces Commander, former Green Beret, Jesse Johnson. So I think it was through Colonel Ben O'Rell uh, decided that we were going to close the airport for traffic until some of the smoke cleared and whatever. <laughs> there was one, one C-130. This pilot kept calling me up, request permission to land. Sorry, the airport's closed, the obscure smoke, blah, 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 blah. And this guy bugged the shit out of me. He wanted to get a combat sortie because the war wasn't over. Uh, he wanted to get his combat sortie. So he kept calling, kept calling, kept calling. And finally I said, okay, whatever you call sign, I forget it. Uh, the airport is closed. However, you are cleared to land at pilot's discretion. I say again, the airport is closed. You're authorized to land at pilot's discretion. He said, I guess I got to go back to Kim Fox. He never got his combat sword. Glad he didn't get my name. He probably would have looked me up. <laughs> he was pissed. So anyway, we, we worked there for the rest of the afternoon. So uh, I was always proud to say that I landed the first fixed-wing aircraft at Kuwait City International Airport uh, at the end of the war. We had sent some guys on some uh, – uh, we, we sent at first – one guy, Steve Jones, on a classified mission with the British uh, small boat unit, the equivalent to the, you know, our Navy SEALs. And he went on a mission, went on a mission with them, and uh, they needed somebody who can call in airstrikes. And Steve had been at the 2-4, so he knew the airstrike business. So he went with them, and uh, <clears throat> they, uh, they liked his demeanor and uh, skills, so they asked if they could have three more guys. So I assigned them four guys total. They went off and did some training, and then uh, they were supposed to do another mission in country. And that's what Steve's, the mission he went on, they went up uh, just a few kilometers, not few, I'm sorry, maybe 25, 30 kilometers from Baghdad, and they blew up coaxial cable that uh, shut down the, uh, the communications into Baghdad. So it was pretty, you know, important mission. Steve. Yeah, no they, uh, you know, Steve was a quiet professional anyway. I always loved that guy. And he uh, he got along well with them. In fact, they took two SF guys. They didn't invite them back. One of them left the calling card there where they were blowing up stuff. You know, the, the British are pretty pretty good about, solid. You, know, you know, secret stuff and uh, cleaning up and leaving no signs or trace that they were there. They found that card, pissed them off, and they, uh, they said, okay, uh, SF, you're done. CCT, we want some more of your guys. So I put three other guys, total four. And towards the end, the reason I'm bringing this up is at the end, the uh, we're taking the embassies over. And because we had the American embassy and 
the British embassy was there too. And the Brits asked if I would allow our guys to go and take the British embassy with, with their team. And I said, sure. So we actually had guys go in and help secure the British embassy, as well as our other guys that went with the SF uh, army special forces and, and took over the, uh, the American embassy. Uh, when, one other short story on this, uh, a guy by the name of Gus Reinhardt <clears throat> that was with me on the ground, uh, he went in town with the uh, commander and they got to the embassy uh, and met the ambassador and the ambassador had a lighter with the embassy uh, logo on it and he gave it to, to Gus because Gus was the first American to be there uh, to help secure the embassy. And... Uh, Gus died of cancer a few years later, and I was asked to do a story for the Air Commando Association Journal, and I was trying to get all that information down, and I remembered that Gus had gotten that uh, that lighter. So I'm calling Carl Casey, because Carl was one of the guys that went fast-stroked onto the embassy, and I said, hey, Carl, I want to make sure that I get the other three guys' names right, and... Uh, and he said, yeah, and don't forget Gus. And I said, yeah. And I said, didn't the ambassador give him a lighter? You know, he was the first guy he met after the war, or the end. And he said, yeah. He said, before Gus died, he gave me that lighter. He said, I got it right here in my desk drawer. I said, you got to be kidding me. Are you serious? I said, take a picture of that lighter and send it to me. And I'm going to make that part of the story. So I, I did. So uh, yeah, that. <laughs> anyway, okay, so uh, I'm going to say again, like, yeah. you know, hey, it, it's great that that you know we we do appreciate all the accolades that you guys give kind of our generation but hearing things like that is just <laughs> you know what i mean like you, you've got endless stories about a guy that uh incredible yeah, people a couple of kudos to some of the other uh, yeah yeah go for it yeah so we had pjs assigned to the helicopters for rescue and uh one one of the uh, aircraft that was shot down, uh, Navy Lieutenant uh, Devon Jones was uh, shot down, uh, and uh, Captain then Tommy Trask, retired as a three-star, but Tommy Trask and his crew with two of our PJs that were assigned to us on that mission uh, rescued him. He was one of the rescues that was successful uh, there in Iraq. Um, so there was that mission. Um, when Spirit 03, our AC-130, was shot down, uh, trying to help the Marines uh, in Kuwait. Um, the aircraft finally was found, and uh, it was in shallow water off from uh, Kuwait in the water. And guys from the 1723rd with some Navy SEALs actually dove on the aircraft and got part of the remains and so on. Um, before the uh, airstrikes started taking place, the day or two before, Major Mike Longoria was an Air Force Academy grad. And he was our DO, uh, Director of Operations. He was best friends with, uh, I think he might have been his roommate at the Air Force Academy, with the F-111 uh, commander. And the F-111 still didn't have the newest radar. So... Uh, um, Better not be uh, Phil Freeman calling. <laughs> so the F-111s 
when they flew long distances, their radar systems would drift and so on. So they needed something close to, to the border because they were flying all the way from Riyadh all the way across Saudi Arabia. And so they wanted something before they hit Baghdad. And not not a lot of people know this because I don't think it was published uh, very well. But we put guys on Army helicopters. Uh, I know uh, John Thompson was kind of our lead guy on that. So John and a bunch of other guys, we had gotten some beacons from the SF. We already had some, but we needed, excuse me, we needed more. So we made us, you know, trade. We gave them some radios. They gave us the beacons kind of thing. It's war. You know, you got to do what you got to do. You do what you got to do. So uh, we put those guys on uh, helicopters, and they landed along the Saudi-Iraq border and took the coordinates of where they put these, I think it was PPN-19 beacons. And when they ran out of those, they actually had made some big, uh, tall radar deflectors, and they put those in a couple other spots. So they would call me at the headquarters back at, uh, at King Fod, and uh, I would copy down the coordinates, call it into uh, the F-111 unit planner, and he had passed it on to the crews. So basically, when the F-111s went across the border, they got to upgrade their systems, and that's why they were a lot more effective than they probably would have been had that not have happened. So that was another part of the war that we supported. Uh, we had – our squadron was over there, but we had augmentation from 13 other units in our 17.3 squadron. We had PJs from Alaska. We had PJs from the Guard and Reserve, from Davis Monthan or wherever. We had a lot of support, uh, especially from the pararescue side, because we didn't have a lot of PJs assigned to us at the time. So, uh, yeah, we had a total of 14 units. uh, And uh, I was the ranking chief there at the time, so they were my guys. And uh, uh, we sent them off on different missions and... They all did a great job, and we we didn't have any any casualties uh, from from our guys doing their doing their thing. One sad thing I will say is that I got back to the states the day before they did the dive on Spirit Zero Three, and. Uh, <clears throat> And, you know, if I'd have been there, I would have been on the dive team. But then I thought about it later. Maybe it's a good thing I wasn't because fire control officer was Captain Art Galvin. Art was a, form, Art was a former enlisted combat controller mm-hmm. that I put through combat control school. And if I would have dove and seen his dead body face or whatever, I probably would have choked on the, you know, whatever. Yeah. So it was uh, – I was I was happy after that I didn't go on that mission. They got a, a few name tags, pieces and parts, aircraft and all that. The weather got fairly uh, strong, so they didn't they didn't stay and do a lot of diving on that. But they did help out. I think after that they sent the Navy dive folks in there, the regular salvage people. Uh, the, doing doing body recovery diving is not fun, and it is it's it's creepy and sad and it's scary it's like when you you know the another creepy thing is when you're kind of in 
in not pitch black water, but you know, enough to where you can see the, the sunlight or lights. And then you come up to the keel of a, of a large boat. That is also kind of, kind of creepy and daunting. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. Cause it's very simple, but it's just, it's a weird thing. One other, I got to put a little comedy in here. You know, I, I'm yeah, yeah. a good sense of humor guy. So when we were flying up to Kuwait to the airport from Saudi, we're on those helicopters so we were given a second lieutenant a little bit of combat time. He was an Air Force Academy grad, great guy. His name was Tom Nalepa. He's on the helicopter with me and a couple of other guys. And uh, the rest were Army, except there was an Air Force uh, dog handler, I think EOD kind of thing, to help us uh, if there were, you know, bombs and they need to be, you know, taken care of anyway. So we're flying up. And uh, we get about halfway up there, and all of a sudden, it gets real stinky in the helicopter. <laughs> Holy crap. So the the dog handler starts beating the shit out of the dog. Stop that. You know, and he's beating the dog and the ass and whatever. So anyway, we go up and we do the mission. We come back. And a few months later, Tom the Leopard decides he's not going to stay, and he's getting out. And uh, during his going away party, he admitted that was him letting gas. It wasn't the dog. <laughs> so, that anyway. poor dog. That poor that dog. Poor dog. Got the key. <laughs> All right. I'll stop there. I've gone on long enough. i got to go camping oh, today. To- I'm taking my great nephews camping with my Oh, that's awesome. Yep. All right. Well, I'll let you go. But uh, again, real quick before we before we part, really appreciate you you coming on. Thanks for everything that you've done for the community. Thanks, in particular, to be a little selfish. Thanks for for what you've done for me, uh, because where I'm at right now would not exist if it weren't for you. So I definitely appreciate that. Um, and everybody else that's out there, please like, subscribe, and uh, take in everything that Chief Norris says because he is. Um, as as humble as he says it, I'll just say it. He is he is a legend. So uh, we're out here. I'm wounded. I've gone on for an hour this time and hour last time. Ah, you're all right. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll take it. All right, everybody. Have a good one. Okay.